Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. sisters. Welcome to Ramadan Unlocked. If this is the first time you're joining our show, um, this is a special Ramadan program um, every Saturday at six o'clock where we discuss Ramadan life, spirituality and community issues. And uh, it's hosted by myself, Junaid Ahmed and Sheikh Shafi Rahman, my co-host. Um, as well as a uh, resident Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Shafi. Um, so he also participates in the uh, discussion and contributes uh, to the answer the questions that we, we receive. But each week we are joined by a very special guest. Um, and this week I'm absolutely delighted that we have Imam Suhaib Webb, um, who's uh, normally based in New York, but currently he's in um, DC in, in the States. Um, to, he's uh, given us uh, his time um, to join us live uh, from there. And we're absolutely uh, delighted. Jazakumullah khairan, Sheikh, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, just a quick introduction to Imam Suhaib Webb. He's the founder of Swiss, Suhaib Webb Institute for Sacred Sciences. He's an American Muslim scholar, um, graduate of Al-Azhar University. Alhamdulillah, he's also memorized the Quran. He's been active in the field of da'wah for over two decades, uh, serving the Muslim community um, in the West. I remember first attending his uh, lecture in 2000 in Birmingham, um, UK. I don't know if the chef remembers. Um, uh, it was a big conference that was organized at, at that time. Um, and uh, alhamdulillah, um, the chef was there giving the speech. But I was also fortunate enough to be uh, Imam Sahib Webb's neighbor in Egypt in 2004, 2005, when he was uh, studying at Al-Azhar and I was spending some time there as well. Um, so really fortunate to have him with us. Jazakumullah khairan, Sheikh, for um, taking your time. The primary theme for today's um, session will be around Qur'an, how to engage with the Qur'an, as this is the month of, of Qur'an. But in Ramadan Unlocked, the show is open, where we discuss all matters around Ramadan life, spirituality, community affairs. So if you have any questions that you would like to pose to Imam Suhaib Webb, please um, write your questions in the comments box, comment section, and we'll try and take um, as many questions as possible. But maybe just to start us off, um, Imam Sahib Web, how, how's Ramadan been for you under lockdown? And uh, what has been the challenges? What have you been missing the most? And uh, maybe what have, been, what have been some of the positives um, during this lockdown? Inshallah, for uh, hosting me. Uh, it has been almost 20 years. We said two decades. Subhanallah. Um, so uh, I would say that, you know, Ramadan in New York is very, very uh, similar to almost like Ramadan in Cairo or uh, the Muslim world just because you have so many Muslims in New York City. Uh, if you go to the borough, uh, like Manhattan, but if you go to like Harlem, in, in iftar time, the Senegali community actually rolls out carpets on the sidewalks. So just like, you just feel like you're back in, in, in a Muslim country. Uh, the same in Bay Ridge with the Arabs, uh, Queens, you have a huge, most of East London, Bengali community in, in Queens. Uh, so you miss the uh, kind of the communal feeling. And then at the ICMU, while you are work under uh, Imam Khal Latif, I think every night for iftar is like 800, 600, 800 people. So that communal uh, experience is definitely missed. Um, you know, and then I think the best kind of the, 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 the a, a positive out of all this is that my entire family has formed like a social bubble. So like we're all in our own city, you know, uh, we're all quarantined except for yourself. 
So we, I think, have been able to create better relationships with one another, you know? Um, bring about family relations. I think there's a lot of butter in that. And I think the third is, you know, as even Allah says, You know, that we believe in like interval, they have interval training now, right? We believe in interval isolation. We don't believe in like long, you know, long periods of extended isolation, but interval isolation. So he says, you know, that nothing is better for the heart than a little isolation. So, you know, the myth of human resilience has been exposed. Um, the need for other people has been exposed. Uh, and then, you know, it's a time of introspection. And and even Hajar actually wrote, you know, like four or five benefits to quarantine. You know, you talk about it later. Yeah, it would be, be interesting to hear um, what those are from Ibn Hajar's perspective. Jazakallah um, khairan, Imam Suhaib. So just to maybe initially start off some discussion around uh, the primary theme for uh, the discussion today, which is around uh, Quran. Um, what's your advice to general Muslim uh, in this blessed month of Ramadan who are trying to engage with the Quran? What would you be advising them in terms of their approach, methodology, um, to studying the Quran? Uh, that's a great question. Um, Imam Shatabi uh, in Hirz al-Amani, his poem, he says, you know, وَبَعْدْ فَحَبْلُ اللَّهِ فِيْنَا كِتَابُهُ فَجَاهِدْ بِهِ هِبْلَ الْإِدَاءِ مُتَحَبِّلَ He said that the Quran is the rope of Allah to the community and you have to make jihad with the Quran. And Allah says in the Quran, وَجَاهِدْ هُمْ بِهِ جِهَادًا كَبِيرًا you know, that you have to literally engage the Qur'an in a way like you're struggling to engage it. You're in, engaged in mujahad because it demands work. So I think I think the first thing, and Imam al-Qasimi, the great Syrian uh, scholar of hadith and tafsir, he said around 100 years ago, the danger of the ummah, the ummah restricts the Qur'an simply to like barakah. You know, just read it for barakah. But first goal is to you're gonna just mute your side um whilst you kind of uh, set your yeah. sorry go on okay like sorry carry on small, small earthquake over there or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> apologies um he, he said the danger of, of regulating the quran simply to barakah that that's the barakah is the outcome and our brother fadl Suleiman, he has a really good youtube series on on tadabur quran you know, thinking on the Quran. So I think the first is that you have to really be ready to work hard. Number two is Ustaz Khurum Marad, Allah uh, You know, he kind of talked about like, not everything you come across in the Quran, you're going to agree with. You know, like people like, oh, I'm going to read the Quran and it has to like suddenly agree with everything I want. Well, then why would, why would there be a Quran? Like the Quran has to challenge you. There has to be a moment of kind of spiritual agitation is the word I'm looking for. Right, the Quran has to agitate you, and that that ultimately leads to some kind of conviction. And I think that the, the last point is like I notice people in Ramadan they they understandably are very focused and they have like an incredible dedication to reciting. But I, I encourage people around halfway through Ramadan, are you now thinking about a strategy of something that you can do consistently after the month? 
من يعبد رمضان فإن رمضان قد فات ومن يعبد الله فإن الله ما يموت right whoever worships the Ramadan the month of Ramadan the month of Ramadan is going to go but if you really want to see the fruit of Ramadan is what carries over after Ramadan so you know maybe halfway through the month you're going to have to think about first of all people they say oh, I'm going to do exactly what I did in Ramadan after Ramadan no you're not it's going to be impossible especially if the quarantine is lifted right but can you do half of what you did in Ramadan? Can you do a fourth of what you did in Ramadan? <clears throat> well, then you're, 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 you're being consistent in your relationship with the book of Allah throughout the year. Yeah. It's an interesting point you say there in terms of when people are engaging with the Quran, um, maybe for the first time, or they're reading the full translation of the Quran and they come across something that they feel they can't quite agree with, or it's not quite settling with them, the kind of uh, uh, spiritual, emotional agitation that you were referring to. How should one take this? Because this can, um, for some people, may be a sense of worry. You know, how can I not be agreeing with something that is divine? And this word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is something wrong with me. So how, how do we navigate through that? I mean, yeah, I think at that moment, what you want to say is like, I agree with this and I'm still working to understand it. You know, like work to understand it. It's not, you know, people tend to think of religion like like takeout, right? But religion is a process. And and the Sahaba, they struggled to implement certain verses of Quran over time. Not all of them immediately were able to do everything. Um, and they believed in Allah. So we're not saying they had any doubt in their aqeedah, billah. But the practice of, of some of the commands and prohibitions in Quran, they struggled with. It's very normal. So give it time. Like I like to tell people, like look at religion as a process. The last verse of the the the, the uh, 48th chapter of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described the Sahaba They're like a small weak stem that grew from a seed and slowly became stronger and stronger. You know, some people said the seed is the Quran. Right? So we're not gonna be immediately like, you know super strong it's a relationship the quran demands a relationship and that relationship needs time and i actually like to tell some of my students when you have these moments that's the sign of a more nuanced mature engagement with the quran you're not just reading it now you're thinking about what you're reading and your thinking may even be wrong but at least you're trying how do we now then re realign those thoughts so asking teachers right reading tafsir doing research you know, online, trying to find, you know, what what have dollars said about what this verse means, uh, asking questions and engaging. And then seeing this as a process, you know, Imam even Taymiyyah, right? He said, like, I used to go to the mountains and make dua, Allahumma ma'alim Ibrahim alimni. You know, when I would come across a verse that I struggled to understand. I mean, this is even Taymiyyah, right? And Al-Ghazali said, there are, there are certain ways I read the Quran, I heard this from Ustaz Khurram Murad, that, Rahimahullah, that I have a way of reading the Quran that is like every three days I finish, every week I finish, every month I finish, then there's another way I, I don't think I will finish before I die. So like he's deeply engaged in the meaning of the Quran and trying to like unravel, you know, what are the asrar of Allah you know, that's not an easy thing. And, and we should, doesn't mean a person's a bad Muslim, doesn't mean they left Islam. 
it means that I am now at a more mature state in my reading where I'm actually beginning to think and engage. What does this actually mean? You know? And maybe we don't engage enough in that area. We spend a lot of time reading um, or reciting the Quran and maybe reading the translation, but this uh, point that you were referring to earlier on in terms of tadabbur al-Quran, contemplating on the Quran, pondering upon the Quran, often we think this is uh, the realm of the scholars. It's not something that ordinary Muslims should be engaged in. Uh, how, how would you advise people, ordinary Muslims, to engage in the contemplation or pondering of the Quran? Um, is that possible without knowing Arabic? Um, you know, do you need to be a scholar or you know, be familiar with uh, a lot of Islamic knowledge for you to be able to do that? At a practical level, the Quran has guidance for everybody, right? There's a difference between like fatwa and, you know, kind of scholarly conclusions about, you know, uh, um, higher level issues than just daily. I think I told you guys the story of my friend. He's from East London. And after the 7-7 bombing, here's a great example that kind of encapsulates what we're trying to say here. He, he, his, his neighbor was actually non-Muslim, so he lived around all the awesome uh, Bengali people, alhamdulillah. And uh, he, he was, after 7-7, his non-Muslim neighbor requested a copy of the English Quran from him. So I think he went to Yahya's bookstore, I don't know, and he got him, he got him the English Quran. And he read it in two weeks, the non-Muslim guy. And so he came back to the Muslim brother and he said, yeah, I finished, uh, I finished your book, man. I finished the Quran. And he said, really? He said, yeah, what do you think? He said, where's the second book? I said, what do you mean? He said, you people don't follow this book. Huh. People in this neighborhood, you're reading a different book. So when we're talking about now daily application of Quran, we're talking about general values, the universal values in the Quran. I don't need to be a scholar to be good to my wife, right? I don't, I don't, I, I tell people like, do you really need to take a class on how to be a good person? Like, I mean, I get it, but like, really? Like, it's in the Quran, how to be a good person. It's in the Quran, right? Do you really need to take a class on like how to smile at your neighbor? Like, I feel sometimes the way we speak to the Muslim community, <clears throat> like we're speaking to people that we think are completely uneducated. Like, you know, I teach my child how to be nice to the neighbor. I don't teach a grown person. So, so the Quran, I remind grown people how to be good. The Quran in that way, and that's why Al-Razi, uh, we can ask Sheikh Suhaib Saeed if, if Razi actually said this, but it's attributed to Razi that he said the majority of the Quran can be understood by everybody. Right? It's just, it's, it, if, if Allah only said the Quran for ulama, how would Islam have spread across the globe to so many different types of people? So, you know, I, I think that, that that's very important. The Tadabur Quran is a fard ain on every person. That's, that's, that's yeah. If I could bring um, Sheikh Shafi in on, on this um, as a kind of general point in terms of um, your advice to the, uh, to, to the Muslims in terms of engaging um, with the Quran in this month of Ramadan. Yeah, I think, alhamdulillah, just to add <clears throat> on what uh, Sheikh Suhaib was saying, it's definitely a lifelong experience. Um, it's, it's definitely a long, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Um, people have to um, take it in stages. People have to be aware of their own selves as well, their own capacities. But definitely, definitely, the Quran is something that everybody can understand. 
at, at a basic level um, that's there. So access the Quran through translation, through easy tafsirs, through classes and things like that. Um, even, even just to give you an example, people access the Quran in different ways in different stages of their lives. Um, even I, I remember myself when I first began to learn how to read the Quran quite late. Uh, I was probably 23, 22. Um, and then comes a stage, you look at the Quran through the lens of, of whichever group you're working with, like an ideolo ideological lens. Um, you then, if you start studying Sharia, you may then start looking into the Quran from purely like Ayatul Ahkam or Sharia, you know, as a book of law. Um, but, but I think even after that, you then go back to what the Quran says about itself. It is a book of guidance, like So it's a book of guidance and guidance must be uh, intelligible to, to everybody, to all Muslims. It's addressed to all Muslims. So I think uh, people need to say it's a long journey, but there's things they can understand immediately. And like uh, Imam Sahib said, it, it, it's not rocket science. Most of the verses is about, guidance is about reminder, reminding you of things that you already know. You do know how to be good to your neighbor. You do know what's right and wrong. It's reminders. And the other thing is, um, it's about, the Quran is about um, getting you to adopt values, right? Ethical values. It's not about the legal system. It's not about just the fiqh. The Quran, if you, if you see less than 10% of the ayahs are to do with ahkam, right? Why? Because the Quran pushes values, taqwa, sabr, you know, generosity, you know, high uh, moral character. That's what the Quran is about, and that's accessible to everybody. Brothers and sisters, we have Imam Suhaib Webb uh, with us uh, today for this show. So if you have any questions for Imam Suhaib Webb, um, our primary theme is the Quran, but we're taking general questions as well. We have already have a few questions that have come through, which we'll be asking the Imam um, shortly. Uh, but a few more questions around um, this idea of um, accessing the Quran and engaging with the Quran in this blessed month of Ramadan. Um, I think the advice and guidance that you've all given makes uh, the Quran accessible to everyone. But um, are we then discouraging people to um, to go deeper into the understanding of the Quran by studying Arabic? Or are we saying actually now with all the translations that are available, you can you can access the Quran and have almost you know same level of contemplation and and depth without necessarily. Uh, studying too much Arabic, where would you where would you um, guide people around that? Because that's always a question that people say: Can I really have khushu in prayer if I don't understand the Arabic language? Can I really understand the Quran? Can I really build that relationship with the Quran if I don't know Arabic? Um, your guidance on this, maybe Imam Sahib where first, and then I'll ask Sheikh Shafi. The best answer is the answer of Sayyidina Imam Shafi, uh, the other Imam Shafi, Allahu Anhu. This is Shafi and Shafi. Um, that a Muslim should learn as much Arabic as needed to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And to have a, a passion, uh, you know. So we would encourage somebody to learn what they need to learn. But learning Arabic, and this I think is a mistake in the pedagogy of, of the Muslim community, uh, maybe 20 years ago or so, is that we ask the masses to become ulama, 
if we ask the masses to go and like study as though this is going to be their career. Whereas someone can learn like basic vocabulary, right? They have now in translations of Quran with the English and the Arabic next to it. And they even have the words underneath it. You know, you could learn those words. It's like, mm-hmm. right? You, 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 what's called vocabulary acquisition. So that when you go into prayer, you're understanding what you're saying, right? Um, would someone have the same level of critical reflection that they would have if they understood Arabic? No. Because even with the Arabic, there's depth. Right? What's called fiqh So someone who knows Arabic, knows rhetoric, knows all the roots of the word, knows the poetry, knows you know all of those things, their reflection is going to be much more deeper. But guidance is from Allah. Abu Lahab, he was at the height of fasaha. You know, Abu Lahab, he was fasih. He was very eloquent. But it didn't, it didn't guide him, right? We, we should remember guidance is from Allah. So if a person's thinking about like a deep scholarly reflection, of course, academically, then one of the requirements would be that you need Arabic. If someone's thinking about a reflection that can touch their heart and transform their life, that's fine. It can be done in their own language, right? And, and uh, a point to what we were talking about earlier too, is that when we tell people, yeah, go, go read, you'll find the answer in tafsir. Oftentimes people find things in, in the books of tafsir that are absolutely like, difficult for them to stomach. Mm. And Dr. Muhammad Musa from uh, Al-Azhar, he did his PhD in Surat Nisa, mashallah. He just said a few nights ago in the lecture I was listening to uh, that every mufassir had his or her own cultural parameters, their own social optics that influenced how they interpreted the Quran. So it's also important that we tell people Tafsir is not something you have, like revealed from God. Tafsir is the critical reflection of a person. And there may be things correct, and there may be things incorrect. So again, if the person comes across something that they don't, because now we're in this call culture, you know, yesterday, someone, I, I mentioned Imam Ibn Qayyim in a Tafsir of Sotul Hujarat for, for uh, ELM. And, and, and someone told me, I don't like Ibn Qayyim. I said, well, when you, when you go to the restaurant, if they have a dish, you don't like Nahari, do you leave? Or do you stay and order something else? So then why are Muslims like this with one another? So I may come across, sorry to take it too far off topic, but someone may come across something in a tafasir and they're like, oh, Imam Tabari said this. I'm done with Imam Tabari. That's ridiculous. Imam Tabari is a person. He does, he, he's not going to agree with everything you agree with. So the, the second point I think to this also is that in engaging the, the tra- scholarly reservoirs of scholarly tradition in, in the sciences of tafsir <clears throat> Quran, it's okay also to not agree with things and look at it as a process and engage and ask questions and not call not you know cancel what we call cancel culture. Cancel culture is not something good, man. Absolutely. Any reflection from you, Sheikh Shafi, on, on this in terms of Arabic and, and the need for that? For, yeah, um, I, I would say for, for people in the West, especially only only because because of the facilities and institutes that are now available, maybe not 20 years ago, but now you've got such a wide availability of institutes teaching Arabic, basic Arabic and things, not to become a scholar, 
But people in the West, if you're serious about understanding the Quran, reflecting on the Quran, I totally agree. It can be done in English with translation. Um, I, re I remember my son when he first read English translation of the Quran. Prior to that, he was just like reading and memorizing Quran, uh, parts of it in Arabic. But when he read the English, he was like, oh, dad, I, I had no idea of the contents of the Quran. I, it's just amazing. So through the English, you can get that kind of hit, if you like. You can get that understanding, motivation, reflection, without a doubt. But it's at a level. If you want to move to the next level, and I think people in the West have the time and the money, mostly, <laughs> um, to be able to afford to do that. Not, not learning Arabic to become a scholar, but learning Arabic to that extent where it allows you to ponder over the Quran a bit more, just get the feel and the taste of the Quran. Yeah. I think that's a very important point for our audience because often we limit ourselves in terms of how we engage with the Quran simply because we don't know Arabic. Um, and, and of course, most of the Muslims in the West don't know Arabic. There are increasing number of uh, students of uh, Islamic Sharia who are learning Arabic, but most don't. And they tend to limit themselves to just recitation of the Quran. Um, so that's actually very important um, advice and guidance from both our guests here in terms of actually being able to engage in a much more deeper and meaningful way with the Quran, even though you may not have the Arabic language. We have a question here. Sorry, Imam Sahib, did you want to come in? And we should we should also create a pedagogy for this, right? Where it's organized. So again, we tell people you study Arabic, you become a scholar. It's, no, no, study Arabic to become to become literate, to become like yeah. functional, have a functional relationship with Quran. How do you have a functional relationship a, 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 with Quran? Is Quranic literacy so like at our school, Swiss? People ask like, if I if I go to Swiss, am I going to become a scholar? No, you'll become literate. You'll become functional. Like people go to the gym, they want to be like muscle-bound freaks, right? No, you just want to have good fitness, functional fitness. So we should think about like Arabic as a key to my functionality, not as I want to be a scholar. Most of the great scholars and Sheikh Shafi probably has the same experience I met in my life. They never wanted to be scholars. They just loved it. Like they just wanted to, to practice. Mm. It wasn't this yeah. like, I want to study, I want to become this person. Yeah, it was. I want to function. Like I want to live, not a theoretical. Because when I when I posit this as a, I'm going to become a scholar. That becomes very theoretical. But what we want is practicality. Okay, how many people pray to Hajj? It's right in the Quran. Right. How many of us were watching bad stuff on TV? It's right in the Quran. So so the practicality component of the Quran, I think, has to be set as the ultimate goal of the curriculum. And scholarship is the, is the, is the sugar on the dessert. Like, if it happens, it happens. Or in the tea. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. It's really interesting when I was looking at your website, Swiss, and you say your target is to um, provide people with uh, functional literacy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly the point that you're making there. Um, Imam Sahib, the question here for you in terms of uh, memorization of the Quran. Um, you memorize the Quran. Traditionally, memorization of the Quran is seen as something that is started at a very early age. And if you don't complete the Quran by, by 12, 14, then it becomes almost um, impossible. But alhamdulillah, you, you managed to memorize the entire Quran at a much later age. Um, any tips, any guidance on how people can go about doing that? 
Yeah, Uthman ibn Affan was 36 years old when he memorized the Quran. And again, sometimes the constructions, the, 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 the uh, religious constructions found in the Muslim community are antithetical to the religion. So for example, religious studies is for kids. Kids don't lead the world. Like no disrespect, like my, my 10 month old daughter is not right now going out and like paying bills. Who leads the world? The grown folks. So why, why would we think that suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm older, so now I'm emancipated from religious studies. And also that means in my mind that religious studies is a child's endeavor. Like really? That's incredible. That's, 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 that's really problematic. Nobody says that about becoming a doctor. You know, if you didn't become a doctor before you're 10, it's just done. You know, if you didn't get into LEC, LSC before, uh, you know, L, what is it? London School of Economics, LCE. If you didn't get into LSE before you're, you know, you're 20, ah, just forget it. Oh, you didn't get into Oxford before you're 14? Life's over. Nobody says that. Why do we say that about a science that we need throughout all of our life? Like religion is something that we need when we're young, when we're in middle ages and we'll get older, right? So I don't think it matters how old you are. Then people always ask me like, but what if it takes me like, so, like years to memorize? Alhamdulillah, imagine when you meet Allah subhanahu ta'ala and you can say, I spent like six years of my life memorizing the Quran, inshallah, right? Like it's not an issue. Uh, I memorized the Quran in my twenties. Uh, I started when I was 20. I finished in two years. So I think like, you know, you 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 don't you do, but i also went too fast because when you go too fast and you have to review for four years it's a joke like if you finish if you finish in one year you review for five years if you finish in two years you review for four years um i i you know what what we were taught is a page a day but that's when we were like in college and had no bills no kids no family but I recommend for like people do what you can. Like I'm very open to this. My teacher taught me whatever a person finds easy. Maybe it's five verses. And as hard they say, right? Who memorizes five verses and masters them will never forget them. So at a minimum, depending on the size of the verses, three to five verses, you know, every day or two. If you're an adult, because you're busy, you got a lot going on. So each day you do three or five verses. You can read them. The next day you pray with them. You walk to work with them. You know, you, you you live your life with those verses and then move on to five more and five more and five more and five more and five more. The advantage of being older also is that you're able to organize your studies better. Oftentimes young people, they're not able to organize their thoughts. So so at an older age, you can create kind of a, a system, if you will. So like I, I tell people, once when I was in Egypt, subhanAllah, I remember I came back to America, this man who was in his 80s, Iqbal Bhatt from Pakistan. And he's like, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. He talked to you. So yeah, he said, do you think I can go to Marcus Diwan? Think I, you think I can go study Arabic? He's 81 years old. Man. Wow. I said, absolutely. Mashallah. Oh, what do you want to tell him to go home and just have dementia? You know, I say, hey, man, go. Go to Egypt and study. So it's not about age. It's about passion. And then being organized. And I tell people three to five verses a day. If, you, if you're a family person, if you're, if you're a professional or in the workforce and you're single, you could do more because you have more time. But someone with children and a wife or a husband, you know, that, that's... I remember one time I met a sister in England. She memorized the Quran, mashallah. Uh, and she told me she used to, while she was cooking, she was a homemaker. She would put the Quran in front of the pot on the window 
and that's how she memorized the Quran. So she would be doing like the work in the kitchen and the Quran, the big Quran would be there and that's how she memorized, mashallah. So that's passion, you know, not necessarily talent. Yeah. Passion with consistency, I think is what will get you there. In an organized plan, right? Three to five verses every two or three days, Yeah. you know, and just keep going at it. And what's been your experience, Sheikh Shafi? You said you started, started a bit late as well in your 20s, early 20s. <laughs> No, I, I didn't start memorizing, but um, I think, look, even the Prophet Sallallahu revelation came at 40. The Sahaba were around that age or younger as well. Um, Imam Abu Hanifa, he started specializing in fiqh very late, late in his age, right? Um, at least after 25 years of age. Izzuddin uh, Abdul Salam started very late. There's many, many scholars um, who start late and w what is late and early these are very subjective things yeah but uh, I think um, it's never too late where I teach at As-Salam Institute every year in different classes there's at least one or two people over the age of 60 studying like foundation Sharia sciences traveling from other cities to come to London to study so I, I think age is not a factor it's just a number as they say um, I'm, I'm quite lazy when it comes to memorizing. I, I feel um, not because of my age. I feel I can, but I'm just not consistent and disciplined enough. But I wish I was. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's open. It's, you can memorize. The other thing about memorization, they say you retain things in your memory, that which you focus on and love, right? If you pay attention to it, you're motivated to memorize. So at, at an older age, usually you do it out of your own motivation you're not forced to do it so hopefully that should stick it's it's never too late lots of people memorize when they're even, older. even in Ezra, i remember the first year in college i went into the the car the, the big area where for the classes and stuff and there was guys in their 50s and 60s from singapore man yeah yeah and i was like are you i was like are you here with your kids <laughs> <laughs> they're like oh man we're students like we can study and i was like subhanallah how amazing you yeah, know yeah and and they worked hard and graduated and mashallah mashallah so all the brothers and sisters who are listening um you know ramadan is a good time for us to make that start but don't allow the end of ramadan be the end of our journey with the quran and engagement with the quran it's a it's an ongoing process and if we have the passion as uh, imam suhaib was uh, saying have uh, our studies organized and have consistency, then inshallah we can move forward. And by the time next Ramadan comes, we'll be in a better position than this Ramadan, inshallah. Uh, some brothers and sisters, if you um, have any questions, please do post your questions in the comment section or, um, um, you know, and uh, it will be passed on to us and we'll be able to take those questions. It can be on topics wider than uh, the uh, theme of the Quran, which is um, the initial introductory conversation that we've been having with uh, Imam Suhaib and Sheikh Shafi. Um, there's a couple of questions that have come, and I just want to take uh, a couple of those. First of all, um, it's, it's a topic uh, to do with uh, da'wah, and we know uh, both uh, Sheikh Shafi as well as Imam Suhaib have been involved in the field of da'wah for um, you know, over two decades. Um, so this one, um, specifically to Imam Suhaib first, um, in terms of your strategies and approach you're using to bring marginalized Muslims in the U.S. Um, closer to Islam. Um, how can we use the teaching of the Quran to change the mindset of our institutions here so that they don't ostracize individuals that might be struggling with their deen? 
Um, so rather than shunning them completely, how do we try and open the doors and bring them back in before they take the extreme um, position and leave Islam completely, which we see is a real reality, unfortunately, within our community where some people are really um, struggling with their faith. Mm. I mean, it's sort of thought here, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, recognizes that our community is not monolithic. He says, Allah says that we have passed on the book to our servants. Some of them are sinners. Some of them are in the middle. Some of them are at the forefront, right? In their khayr. So the Muslims, that's, that's who we are. And Imam al-Tahawi, uh, in his famous Aqidah, he says, you know, all of the believers of our awliya of Ar-Rahman in different stations based on their ta'at quran So first of all, we need to embrace these people as being generally Muslims. And we need to engage them in ways maybe between uh, targhib and tarheeb, right? Like some people need motivation. Some people need agitation. <clears throat> you have to understand them before you can like, engage that and then at the same time and i think this is where institutions become concerned is this is not a free-for-all right this is not like heathenry to be muslim means to uh, adhere to a certain set of principles values morals and beliefs and not everybody's at that point but we want to keep that point in front of us because i've seen some in dawah they don't have any dawabit is the word I'm looking for, right? They don't have any foundation. So people feel like I'm just coming in, I can maintain my lifestyle or I can maintain some of the uh, unhealthy acts that I'm engaged in. Absolutely not. Islam is, is, I like to tell people, Islam is really about achieving the ultimate you, right? You know, through Islam, you can really become a righteous person and then also a successful person, inshallah. So, so I, I think it's it's unfair, especially with people who become Muslim, uh, where they become Muslim without really understanding what this really is. Like we always have to to buffer and insulate people's understanding with listen, there are certain foundational beliefs and practices which are non-negotiable in Islam. It's okay that you struggle with that and you work towards that. But we're not going to forego those foundations for anybody. Like, that's not our business. That's the business of Allah. And I think those honest conversations are more meaningful to people than either becoming overly harsh and pushing them out or overly laxed. And then later on, they discover that, oh, I was supposed to do these things and you never told me. Right? There has to be, there has to be, the ending is Allah. And if we really love people, if we really care for people, we're not going to hide from them what Islam is asking them to do. But we're going to think strategically and deeply about how we build and help facilitate their engagement with those foundations. I don't see that happening a lot of times. You know, it's very, like, either very harsh, people don't feel welcome, or it's the opposite. It's extremely laxed. There needs to be what we call a vital center, right? So that has to be done by understanding the person, knowing who that person is, being willing to serve that person. You know, I like to tell people, work work with 
with Muslims, if it's really work, it, it requires sacrifice. So I know, for example, I know a major speaker in, in, in America and in the world who has no problems going to the projects and visiting the converts' parents. That's real work. Uh, has no, Dr. Mozemo Sadiqi, mashallah, in LA. One time, he's now almost 80, I think, years old. And uh, I met somebody who was in, in the hospital in LA. And they said, yeah, there was this old man. He had this big white beard and he came and visited me every week in my hospital room. It was Dr. Muzama Siddiqui, who's the head of the Fiqh Council, is on the Majma'a Fiqhi in Mecca, which was now destroyed. But, but, but like, that, what I'm trying to say is like the worker that's doing this has to sacrifice also. Like that has to be a passion. It's not just tell people, fear Allah, be a good Muslim, and then you know, get upset when they don't listen to you. So understanding the person, understanding that you have to sacrifice, and then what I said earlier, or appreciating the parameters of Islam. Mm. And, and then hikmah. You know, how, how do you present? If I give you a plate of biryani iftar and I shove it in your face, one of my teachers used to tell me, you know, if I bring biryani to you iftar and I shove it in your face and make you eat it, you're not going to want to eat biryani. But if I put it like make the rice orange, you know, whatever, some some flowers and yeah, then you're going to want to eat You have us to go before iftar, Sheikh. So <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry. I'm, it's all good. Yeah, mashallah. Uh, so I think, you know, the, uh, it's really interesting you make the point. What, what would be your advice to some of these institutions and Daryl organizations, um, the community organizations who um, are now seeing increasing number of young people who are coming who are really struggling uh, with their faith? So they're not denying um, any of the Thawabits, any of the kind of fundamentals of Islam. They're not saying these are not, you know, part of Islam, but really struggling to implement those in their lives or really embrace them what space should these institutions organization provide for them um, within the Muslim community it it like a, it's almost un, unless you meet certain criteria of uh, religiosity um, you have to be outside of the wall outside the door and once you meet those criteria then you're welcome to come in um, what's your what's your it, it requires a lot of patience it requires a lot of patience to be to be in dawahs to be abused right mm. Is part of, you know, as as Waraka ibn Nawfal said to the Prophet, like, I wish I was young. Because your people, they're going to kick you out. Like, to be involved in dawah is to be slandered, is to be ripped to pieces, is to be hurt by people you love. To be a da'ya is to be hurt by your lover. Like, that's truly what it is in many ways. And, and, and you have to be very patient. So I'll give you an example. In a community that I used to live in, it wasn't in Boston. This lady, she used to come with no hijab and nothing, man. And she told me, I'm a feminist, and feminism, duh, 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 right? I said, wow, I, I'm just from Oklahoma. I'm a very simple person. I told her, me, I'm just as hari, you know, I don't know, this, 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 uh, you know, theorist and so on. She said, I'm gonna pray, but I'm gonna pray without hijab, and I'm gonna pray in the front. By myself, I'm not going to pray in Jama'ah. I, said, I didn't respond to her. So she used to come for the first few months and go and pray by herself in the front. I know nobody can de- expect this, right? But after, mashallah, like she attended halaqat and she listened and she started asking questions. 
Now, alhamdulillah, she's, you know, wearing appropriate attire and she prays in, in, the, in the proper place. I could have thrown her out. Right? And, and people attack me for this. But I believe in the power of Allah to change people. Because I experienced that in my own life. So sometimes people want to rush Allah's guidance. Allah's guidance is his business. Our job, as the Prophet said, muyassir, is to facilitate without violating. Uh, in a large mosque, that wouldn't have been possible, by the way. I know. It was a small, like, zawiyah. So I know it's like, it's not going to, no one's going to, because if it was in a huge mosque, of course, there's going to be a bigger harm, perhaps, happen, because people are going to fight, and she's going to get yelled at, and she's going to yell back. This was a very small musallah. I said, <laughs> she used to pray by herself for like the first few months and then she would come and listen to the lectures. And then she started asking questions. And I started answering her questions. And then she met some other teachers. And now, alhamdulillah, she told me, I feel so stupid. I said, it's okay. We could have thrown her out, bro. Absolutely. So we have to be patient with people but not, again, the reason I made that call, it's a very small musallah. It's not mm -hmm. like masjid where there's going to be a fight, which makes yeah. you, have, you have to protect the congregants of the masjid first. Mm. Um, but you, you, you have to be patient with people. And, and you, when you're talking about dealing with this new generation, number one is any masjid that's very serious is going to have a paid person who engages social media. Majority of young Muslims in East London, I guarantee you, are more of them are on Instagram than at the masjid. More of them are on TikTok than the masjid. On Snapchat than the masjid. The masjid doesn't have to say to itself, we failed. You haven't failed. That's every church, every synagogue, every college. This is the problem, right? But can you bring in not just a youth worker or youth director who's on the ground? That's important intake you gotta have an intake person but even on social media is there is there a presence in a way that is like we see our mashaykh like look at like sheikh hasid noor look at yasmin mugahid uh look at omar Soleiman doing his series on al malaika they're engaging these places so when i talk about engagement say say elm for example or inspire what you got you guys are doing it right Faith inspire. There should be a way of thinking, okay, I'm online. I'm on someone's phone. They reach out to me. Are there resources that I can redirect them to at an intake level? Because we don't want those people also going to like the Aqidah Tahawiya class because the people in Aqidah Tahawiya have, have worked hard, have struggled and dealt with a lot of things that that person has already has still to deal with. We need to have specialized type of curriculum that addresses these kind of people. Not because they're bad, because it's the best way to serve them. And at the same time, we preserve those people that have already gone through that. They don't necessarily want to go back and deal with that again. They want to continue to grow. So this again is a pedagogy. Intake. Who deals with the gangster kids? You got a specialist, they deal with the gangster guy. Who deals with people that used to sell drugs? We've got a person. They know how to deal with people who used to sell drugs. Who deals with, you know, uh, young women issues? That, that's how there should be, like, this is ministry, right? We, we don't like to use that word associated with Christianity. But it's like a ministry, 
right? How do you intake this type of element and then you have a, a process <clears throat> that allows them to grow while preserving the integrity and foundations of the broader community. So, so like that's where mm. these young guys, and then you have someone online, an online presence that's saying, hey, we're Faith Inspire. Here are the services we offer for young people. You've engaged, you've got some powerful social media things out there. And in many ways, it's an uphill battle. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the glitz of dunya. I mean, at the end of the day, look at, look at what people are being bombarded with. Like every day, the imagery of dunya is really amplifying this temporary life as the permanent abode of happiness and minimizing the akhirah and its place. We have to come back and al al-akhirah dunya. Right? We want to remind people of al-akhirah. So I think this requires a lot of work and it has to be strategic. It involves marketing, right? And then a pedagogy and then you have like Shafia can talk about like in certain situations you want to partner with mental health and, and, and psychological uh, people, excuse me, psychiatrists, people that can deal with mental health issues, family therapy. A lot has to go into this. Yeah. Shafi, your reflections on this, um, particularly within the British context, the UK context? No, I think, I think it's even more important in the UK um, because traditionally um, our communities the way we've been brought up, the way the massages have been set up, the type of people who have been active, like in the Dawa scene around masjids and institutes, um, are, are what you can describe as conservative, right? Both in appearance, in outlook, in understanding. And that's always been a problem when it comes to youth um, and, and having access and feeling that openness to actually access places where religion is taught or at least where religious questions are answered or even entertained. So I think in, in the UK, we've got to work doubly hard. I, I, I don't think the massages are still there yet. You know, um, there, There's good practices here and there, but there needs to be a revolution in opening up our spaces and making people feel welcome without having to become like muttaqi number one to enter it through the doors. Um, and I, I, I always recall the um, example of the Prophet who himself is described as a mercy for the world, right? That was his approach. And where the uh, drunk, the person who was constantly having a problem with an addiction, drinking, right? And he was brought in front of the Prophet and, you know, some people were cursing him. And the Prophet said, don't curse him for he loves Allah and his messenger. I mean, that is the approach we have to take that these young people, if they are approaching us or approaching the masjid or an institution, they're doing that out of love. I, I, I get surprised sometimes on social media, from the appearance, you, you think these people have nothing to do with the deen. But you look at the comments they're making, you know, this Ramadan, I want to understand the Quran. And, and you look at the appearance and you think, because you become judgmental. You think these people are so far away from the deen, but no, even if they're not wearing hijab, they're wearing, even if the young boys are on different social media platforms, doing lots of different things, they have a basic love for Islam. And that's why they want to come and learn or ask questions. And I think we have to have that, you know, we have to revolutionize our spaces in terms of 
it's like businesses, you know, customer service. It's like we've got to make it comfortable for the people who are coming in. We've got to make it um, so that it's open. People don't feel scared or pressured. Um, they don't feel like they're discriminated or looked down upon. And that's that's usually what happens in a lot of places. But yeah, there's work to be done. How do, how, how do you create? Uh, sorry, Junaid. Yeah, carry on. How do you create an understanding, say, amongst because the I have a, a concern also sometimes, and you didn't you didn't say this, but the conservative Muslim is also an integral part of our community. They keep us honest. Without a doubt, I agree. I agree. Without a doubt. So how do, you, a doubt. how do you how do you then educate the conservative Muslim and say, look, man, these people may be coming through the community, and you're going to feel a little insecure and angry. But can you not react? Like, how do you do that? That that seems to be. And then on the other end, we need to tell people that are coming in and may not be as conservative. You just don't cancel these guys because they say something you don't agree with. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like this dual yeah. kind of impatience. How do you how do you suggest engaging the more conservative elements to get what we call community buy-in? You know, mm. We're working for a transformative appro approach with these people that are going to come in and you may see things you don't agree with. Like, how do you do that? I haven't figured it out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's through experience. Like I know an imam who's quite conservative, many years been working in the community, but it's through experience. He's now changed his outlook because of the cases that have come to him, you know, again and again. He's had he's been forced, if you like, to change his outlook. And also, I think speakers like um, Mufti Mank, Tariq Jamil in Pakistan, who visually you might think these are very conservative people, but Tariq Jamil, I mean, he speaks mainly in Urdu. I don't know if you know him, Imam Suhaib. Uh, he's wonderful. I mean, the accessibility people feel um, through these speakers, you know, they just feel. There was a presenter asking him questions, and he's, she said, in Pakistan, most people, uh, imams and maulanas, put the fear of God into people. But you're the first imam that I actually, regardless of my background, I began to love Allah. Like oh. this is a this is a presenter on national TV saying, um, you know, you're the first imam that I've listened to that has shown me that Allah is compassionate, he's merciful, he loves me. So, you know, I, I think those those are good examples, but it, it's a struggle, it's a struggle. Uh, so, so go back to what Imam um, Suhaib was uh, saying earlier on, it requires a mind, mindset shift um, from being judgmental to one where you're almost um, being at the service of others and welcoming people. And I think that's what we often um, don't see enough amongst the, um, you know, leadership or, um, you know, imams and scholars. We, we're starting to see more, but, you know, not enough. We're actually it's almost welcoming and making people feel at home, um, opening the doors, allowing people to be comfortable first within their current context and then working and advising and guiding um, rather than taking the other approach where, no, I'm going to be, judgmental i'm going to be giving you the advice you take these advice first and then you come come in so how do we almost create this mindset mi mindset shift um, amongst people and, and institutions 
I think you have to create a, a culture. It's like it's like a company. You create a culture, and you you have really meaningful conversations with people. You reflect on the sirah of the Prophet Sallallahu which is really invested in in transformation. And 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 kind of remind you know Allah said to the Sahaba, "Kadarika kuntu min qabru, faman Allahu alaykum fatabayyanu." You used to be like these people. Right? Like, don't forget, this is where you used to be. And then Allah blessed you. So maybe reminding these people, You know, you, you now have an opportunity to share this passion and love that you have for Islam with these people that can openly, uh, ultimately perhaps lead to transformative results. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of the... I don't, I don't know about England. I haven't been to England in a few years, but do, do Let we, us know when you want to come, Sheikh. After the lockdown, inshallah. Do, do we frame um, the role of da'wah in institutions, even in America, seems to be lost? Yeah. Right? The idea yeah. of da'wah. Definitely. It's, it's, it's like such a 90s thing, isn't it? When you look at it now, da'wah. You just... It's... I think what two couple of things have happened. One is... Um, you've got this huge social justice movement, if you like. A lot of Muslims coming into the deen uh, off the back of uh, identity politics, uh, discrimination, Islamophobia, and other things. So, so you have people um, perhaps on the platform of the deen. Yes, they want solutions through the deen, but it's more about the left politics. It's more about uh, fighting Islamophobia or social justice, if you like. Um, so that's that's quite a large section of of the people. You've got others who are just purely into the, you know educational entertainment, if you like, um, attending big conferences, attending courses, attending talks, but not doing anything afterwards. It's just attendance, being motivated, etc. Not everybody, of course, people uh, do benefit; they are transformed. But yeah. that idea of my responsibility of dawa of changing myself and, and then changing others, that responsibility and sacrifice seems to be not the operating mode of a lot of groups or, or yeah. speakers or individuals. And we, we need more of that. If, I, if just looking at some of the comments that have coming, uh, has coming, Isabella Hanifa is saying that, you know, she absolutely agrees uh, to what's been said. There is no masajid list in London that provides access for youth. Their needs are not met. So, you know, that, that's a worrying thing um, when someone is saying there is no masajid in London that has uh, is accessible to youth. I think what they mean is not just like doors are open, young people can come in, but in terms of the resource, the facilities, the service that is there, welcoming environment there, dealing with their issues and concerns, that's probably not been met to the level that look, is required. Looking, looking at the resources of masjids in terms of the people running the masjids, the management committee, the type of backgrounds they come from, and things like that, with the exception of a few, perhaps. Yeah. I think it's a it's a tough ask to ask those people. I remember when I used to work in the uh, drug treatment field, and we wanted to just hand out leaflets after Juma about drug treatment, you know, support for people who are using drugs. And masjids wouldn't allow us to do that mm -hmm. because it was such a taboo topic. So 
It, it is, and you know, I, I think young people as well, they need to be involved. They need to get onto the message boards in their local mosque, get involved, serve, etc. Otherwise, this change is not going to come. Bigger, bigger discussion and, and, and another challenge within our community in terms of uh, mosque management. Um, we can um, maybe cover another day. We've got Sham Shamsuddin who's saying a lot of mosques uh, can learn from what Imam Suwaib uh, Webb has just said. Lily Chai um, is saying that you have to be a certain type of youth or have a certain look for you to enter the masjid. Um, Khalid Rahman is saying there are over 40 masajid in, in, in uh, this part of, town, um, of London. We need more English khutbas on Friday. I think there's an increasing number of khutbas. That's a tough right. one. <laughs> more English khutbas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lily Chai is saying try not uh, try not being a hijabi and want to go to, into a mosque. So mm. you know these are real issues, real concerns by uh, within our community. Um, so in the month of Ramadan, when Alhamdulillah more brothers and sisters, the Muslim community is trying to re-engage with the Quran, re-engage with their faith, re-engage with the Masajid. Of course, now they're closed, but generally re-engage with the faith. It's really disheartening to hear many people feel that they can't access the mosque, they can't relate to the mosque um, in, in, in the current state, in, in their level of Iman, their level of religiosity um, that they're in at the moment. So I think um, some quick points on that, Simon Sahib. I mean, can you imagine this poor sister, right? And I love yeah. what she's saying. Like, it's, already, it's already intimidating to be young and just go to a mosque. I mean, I experienced that as a non-Muslim. It's perhaps one of the most, um, just because of your own insecurities, not because of necessarily what anything the mosque has done, but just like to walk into a religious space, it's like extremely uh, uncomfortable. And then to be immediately met with opposition, you know, doesn't the Prophet say if someone takes one step to Allah, Allah takes 10 steps to them. Somebody, it's Hadith Qudsi. Somebody walks to me, I run to them. We have young people like this woman walking into the mosque and we push them 10 steps back. And, and that is where the, the deeper ethos of the, the institution is. Are you operating as a prophetic community or a cultural club? Are you operating as a prophetic community or as a certain jama'ah that uh, uh, adheres to a certain ideology whose purpose is to defend this tariqah, minhaj, or whatever? That's the problem. A prophetic community will have no problem with this woman walking in with no hijab. Right? As long as, as she's not going on the minbar and saying, I don't believe hijab is far. She's not saying that. She has her own set of, I, I know women who don't wear hijab because their parents won't let them wear hijab. I know women who don't wear hijab because they struggle with the idea of hijab, but they still pray. So, so when are we going to start to talk about a prophetic community? Not a cultural community, not an ethnic community, not a convert community. No, a prophetic community. What does, what does it mean to be a prophetic community? And then how do we evaluate the, Allah says, you know, Siraj and Munira, the prophet is a torch. Al-Razi said, because the torch traditionally is a light that's, it's, it's passed on to other tribes. So every Muslim is a torchbearer of the, of the prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So how do we then understand 
that we have a set of foundations that are non-negotiables, but then are smart enough to understand that not everybody has reached those non-negotiables. <clears throat> like, isn't that the sign of really a successful endeavor? That I can, I, I, I'm so comfortable with what I believe that people that orbit around that space will either choose to say, you know what, I don't agree and go or get better. You know, like that is, I think, the, the issue here. And 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 I I, I don't know in, in the U.S., especially after 9/11, um, the 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 shift of the masjids to being wanting to make white people happy, hmm. right? Wanting to be close to power is perhaps more prevalent than being a prophetic community. Dawa. And, and and then we forgot, like, you talk to young Muslims, man. It's not easy being Muslim in the West. It's just not. Yeah. It's just not easy. Like, in New York City, New York City reminds me a lot of the UK. Right? I mean, the amount of facade that you could get involved in in New York City, man. And and nobody at, at, the, at the weed or the trap house or they're not like, you don't have hijab on. The bar, the bar is not like, you don't have hijab on. You know what I mean? They're like, come on in. Satan, Satan is a good guy. Yeah. Just come on in, man. It's all good. You could go to the bar with a thobe and a kufi on. No one would stop you. Right. They wouldn't say anything to you. So we, we really need to get back into being a prophetic community that understands we, we, we are meant to help each other reach our potential in our relationship with God and to facilitate that process while maintaining firmly, but with kindness, a set of non-negotiables. That's very important. I think it's really important to get the masajids, or not just masajids, but the, but the leaders, the imams. We have to understand that. So, um, just a couple We've got minutes. one minute. One just minute. minute. Yeah, so conclude. Okay, yeah, very short, very okay, short. Yeah. I think it's about a lot of our imams that have been produced traditionally in madrasa, especially in the UK, um, looking at Islam from the golden age and the books of fiqh from that period when we were mighty and powerful and that's a complicated legal system and everything. We have to understand and realize we are in decline. We are in the weakest point in our history. Um, people have not been born into a practicing, fully understanding Islamic family. So we have to readjust the way we look at things. That's that's the key. And and I think Imam Swayb said it nicely, the prophetic community, prophetic approach, not the madhahibs in that sense, not the golden age of all of these rules and regulations that were developed in courts and things like that, but looking at people as human beings and welcoming them. Open, with open arms and understanding their reality and struggle. On this point of creating a prophetic community, Salahuddin Ahmed is saying we need more imams on the front line engaging with the community out of the masjid as well, engaging with, with the youth outside of the masjid. So on, on that final point, um, Imam Suhaib, before we wrap up. Yeah, that's, that's important. Why, even if we look at the Dara Ulums or the Zaytunas or the any of the, the kind of the colleges that have been established, right? Where is the creation of the public intellectual? Like there's, you know, 
Right? The Prophet is posited as a public teacher. In Azhar, Shafi'a, we can say this, right? Great education, for the most part. But you're not necessarily taught, unless you engage the shiuch outside, right? You're not taught to think about being a public intellectual. You're taught to be scholar, kind of, you know, somewhat um, eclectic, maybe. Whereas these madrasas, right? These Dar ulums, religious colleges, they do a great job of creating a prototype sheikh. Great. We need that in the masjid. But who's going to create the public intellectual? Who's going to create the Malcolm? The Siraj Wahaj? The Aisha Adawiyah? People that can go in the streets, have knowledge of deen, and reach the people. That's considered even in some religious circles. Like, what? Like, I'm a scholar. I want to talk about qiraat. I want to talk about asaneed, ijazat. So this is it's the own little ecosystem that can exist with have, without having very little empathy or connection to the masses of people. So so your question and, and what uh, our brother mentioned in the comments is crucial. Yeah. And the community should demand this. If I'm going to put money into this, Look at Tar Molana Tark Jamil that, that Shafiq was talking about. Look, look, look at how just a slight change in approach has impacted Pakistan. Yeah. Right? So the public intellectual. Yeah. And, and these are the names that you've mentioned, and um, you know, um, other other individuals um, like uh, the like Imam Tariq Jamil and and all the uh, Imam Siraj of Hajj and the others that you mentioned, and yourself, uh, both Imam Sheikh Shafi and Imam Sahib Web. Someone is saying Imam Sahib Web is a personification of a change maker, and this is exactly what we need: change makers in in the community. And from Faith Inspire, that's one of the mission that we have is to create change makers in society. So all the brothers and sisters who are listening and who have commented on this uh, issue come forward we need all of you to come forward and be change makers in society where we can make that contribution inshallah um, and uh, take the message of islam not just in keeping inside the mosque but outside so that we make our faith open to um to to others and take that message out there in in the community and make a positive change jazakumullah khair and imam sahib web for joining us uh, so many more questions and areas of discussion um, maybe we can, um, you know, have a, have another opportunity in the future, inshallah, to carry on with that conversation. We thank you for your time. Jazakumullah khairan. Jazakumullah khairan, Sheikh Shafi as well. Um, and uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and keep us in your prayers in this blessed month of Ramadan. Everyone, Jazakumullah khairan for tuning in. Until next week, stay safe and keep us in your prayers. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.